Your congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, you find it on page 1373 in our pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. Our text will come from verse 10 through 13. I'd like to read that again in the context of the entire chapter. Let us hear God's word, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedient received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will? For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under, under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear, who though through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the epistle to the Hebrews was written, as we know, to Jewish Christians living abroad. These Christians would have had many 
Jewish traditions that they maybe still loved and cherished. And the Judaizers would have, would have wanted them to participate in these traditions as well. And, and maybe it would, they had many things that pointed, yes, to the Lord Jesus Christ and were good things. They had the law of God and, and all of those laws. They also directed their attention to one who would come to fulfill that law, to keep it perfectly. They even added laws to that in way of trying to earn their salvation. And yet, these traditions and works, a to-do-based religion, focused on trying to make them feel comfortable for doing all of the right things. And when they would receive the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, that it's all by grace alone in a Savior who was God-man, who humbled Himself so low even to the point of death for our sins, that was a challenging message to receive. A message that was a stumbling block. A message that was offensive. Advent 2021. Christmas 2021. Is it any different? The world wants to take Christ out of the Advent, out of Christmas. Replace Christ with anything that you might buy into. Now, let's not even think about the world. What about for Christians? Do we know the offensiveness of the birth of Christ? That the Son of God from eternity, full of radiant glory, veiled that glory took upon Himself what He had created and became creation, humanity. To be born in a palace. No, 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 no. Not a palace. Not a nice manger scene that you might see in a nativity set. But in the filth of a dark and dungy cave stable Is that offensive to you? Do you think that offense that, that message would be offensive to our neighbors? I think that's something we have to think about. As we remember the redemptive work of Christ, that's what we remember. We remember his humiliation as His work of redemption. And it's not all about wonderful family time. That's a blessing. It's not all about gifts and lights and trees and whatever you want to say 
I'm not saying all of, any of those things are necessarily wrong of themselves. But if that's what Christmas has become to us, and there's nothing offensive about the reality of the humility of Christ, we've missed the whole purpose of Christ's incarnation. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing here in Hebrews chapter 2, he's setting forth the reality of humanity and humanity's place in creation. And we don't see all of these things yet put under humanity. But we see Jesus. And verse 10 says this, it was fitting for Him It was fitting for Him to be made lower than the angels. It was fitting for Him to take upon Himself our flesh. It was fitting for Him to come to the lowest place that humanity had to offer for a baby to be born. To the lowest place for Him to be a Savior. Because salvation comes through a suffering Savior. It's fitting. And that's why the author to Hebrews is saying to these Judaizers, no, the gospel message is fitting. And it's fitting for us today as well. It's fitting. And so let's hear this fitting purpose of Christ's incarnation. The fitting purpose of Christ's incarnation will come from, from these verses, which we've read in verse 10 through 13. And we'll Use the theme, the purpose of Christ's incarnation. We'll just follow the line of the text. The main purpose is to bring many sons to glory. Secondly, as the captain of our salvation. And thirdly, by being sanctified as one in Him. The purpose of Christ's incarnation. A summary state of the gospel. To bring many sons to, to glory as the captain of our salvation by being sanctified as one in Him. Let's look at the heart of this purpose. It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. What we see right away when we recognize this is this this is speaking about Him. Who is the Him? Well, the Him is God, the triune God. Triune God, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning of all things and the end of all things, the one who is from eternity to eternity. And in time, as He's created time, He's created man, He's created the world, He's created the universe. And so, by whom are all things? It was fitting for Him who created all things. It was fitting for Him who who created all things Because they're all to His glory. Notice how it says that. For whom are all things? All things are created for His glory. And they're created by Him. Because by whom are all things? And His whole purpose in creation is to show His sovereign grace to His own glory. It's fitting for Him which created all things so that we might also enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And notice how He sets right up front 
a fitting end goal. He knows the destination. The end goal is set right before us to bring many sons to glory. Why is this so fitting? Well, if we look before in Psalm 8, which is quoted, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him, we, 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 we immediately think about the first one who was created, Adam. And, of course, we all know how Adam fell into sin, but Adam was created in this perfect state as the head, as the representative of all humanity. And so what we find is it's fitting for him who created all things to send one to be the captain of our salvation, to be a second Adam, a second Adam to bring these sons to glory. To be another representation. Since Adam failed, we also know that God has prepared another representation in Christ. And we'll hear more about that this afternoon in way of imputation. But for now, let's just think about it's fitting because he becomes a second Adam. A second Adam. It's fitting to Because notice this word, sons. He's bringing many sons to glory. Adam was called the son of God. Israel, when they came out of Egypt, were called the son of God. Here, he's bringing many sons, all of his people, all who are united to Christ, into glory. God who from eternity dwelt as a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelt in a, in a relationship, a close relationship as a family. And He gave Adam to this world. And what was lacking? A family. There was no suitable helpmate for Adam. There was no wife for Adam. There were no children for Adam. He looked around the creation. Something was missing. Adam was without a wife and a family. But what do we find here? God has the end goal in mind. It's fitting even as He's created us in a relational way. It's fitting for Him to restore this family relationship, to bring sons into glory. Notice even in verse 13, how how He quotes Isaiah. Chapter 8 there, he says, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. He calls us brethren. He's our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings us into the family of God. It's fitting. And it's fitting to to be brought into glory. Isn't that why Christ came into this world? I I think of John chapter 17 and the last prayer that Jesus has with all of his disciples before he goes to Gethsemane. And, and in this, this prayer, he, he prays, Father, glorify your Son with the, with the glory that I've had with you from, from even the foundations of the world, even before I've come into this, into this world. And then he goes on to show and, and to pray for his people that they would be one in him. And, and then he goes on to the end. In verse 22 of John 17, And the glory which you gave me I give them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me. Father, 
He prays, I desire that they whom you have ga- you gave me may be with me where I am. It's his desire. That's what he's come for. That's what he that's what he took upon himself our flesh for. That's what he suffered for. That's what he went to the cross for. It's to bring us to glory. We may be with him where he is, that we may behold his glory. That end goal is set right before us in this purpose. This is the purpose of Christ's incarnation to bring many sons to glory. How beautifully this is illustrated in the Old Testament. Think of Exodus, where God's people are in Egypt, bondage. And God raises up a deliverer. He raises up Moses to bring them out and to lead them out of Egypt, to cross the Red Sea, to, to show the Egyptians and all of their gods that they are worthless and use, useless. He brings them through the wilderness, through all of the real difficulties of life. And even though Moses can't bring them into the promised land, no, he's, he's a mere man. And he's also sinned, and and he can see the promised land, but he can't go in with Israel. Yet God raises up another deliverer. He raises up Joshua, a Joshua, another one who would be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, which is a type of glory in heaven. You see, this all shows us the purpose, the purpose of God's redemption for Israel is a reflection of the purpose that He has for all of His people to bring them to glory with Him in heaven. A place where there's real people, perfect people, without sin, without suffering, without any kind of persecution. Save sinners made saints by the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Real people in a real place. I'm not, I don't pretend to understand and to know exactly what heaven is. Paul even says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But we do know. It's a place where Jesus is. It's a place that He has provided and is preparing for us. It's a place where He provides us with the right clothing, white robes of righteousness, to be able to live in the full light of His glory. There doesn't even need to be a sun there because He's the light of heaven. Its walls are secure. It's a secure place fit for a king with streets of gold and walls of the most precious stones with the finest of nourishment and the best fellowship anything or anyone could offer. It's a real place with real people, with real pleasures. As we find in Psalm 16, You will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy 
We're at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Real, <clears throat> real pleasures. You can contrast it maybe with the pleasures of this world. The pleasures of this world always come with such a high cost, don't they? And, and at the end of your life, you have nothing to show for it. The pleasures of a new toy, it soon passes away. The pleasures of a new whatever you fill in the blank. As the pleasure passes away and the joy in it passes away, all you're left with are the payments and the burdens of it. The pleasures of a night out on the town. You're left with a hangover and debt and guilt. All the lies that the world has to offer about climbing the corporate ladder making and accumulating so much money and having all kinds of experiences and all of it will pass away and be remembered no more. But at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. Do I understand what we'll be doing there? I don't understand that either. A hundred percent. But I do know what the Bible says. Those who are there, they will be with the Lamb of God. They will see His face. Their names will be on their foreheads. His name will be on their foreheads. They will cast their crowns at, at the feet of their Savior, at the feet of their Lord. And they will be called up to serve with Him with joy unspeakable. There will be nothing selfish in heaven. Nothing worrisome. Nothing painful. No sin. No wearisome labor that brings out the sweat on our brow. No. We will be welcomed into the joy of the Lord forever. To experience Emmanuel perfectly. Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be with us in the flesh so that by faith we might believe in Him to be with Him, Emmanuel, for all eternity in the fullness of joy, in the fullness of His glory. How do we get there? Well, the purpose of Christ's incarnation is to bring many sons to glory. How? And by whom? Maybe is a better question. By whom? The captain of our salvation. The captain of our salvation who is made perfect through sufferings. What is a... Let's see that in our second point. The, the captain of our salvation. What, what does this word captain mean? Well, uh, it could be translated author as well, or maybe even prince, but, but in a cer certain sense, uh, we, we, we know this to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. Let's flesh out this word captain a little bit. Let's think about who Jesus is as the captain of salvation. Well, the captain here could be seen as what many would call a trailblazer. A trailblazer, maybe that's the best word. Although there's many words that can describe this word captain. A trailblazer, first of all. 
Or like a, a pioneer, like Lewis and Clark were, when they, when they headed west with a, with a few people and a few supplies, and, and, and they had actually some resources, some skill and some courage, but, but just a lot of determination to go forth into the Rocky Mountains and try to cross the Rocky Mountains to the other side. A treacherous journey a few would have dared to face. That kind of trailblazer, that kind of pioneer that blazes the way. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And He's the only way, as we find in John 14. And He has the end goal, the end destination of glory in heaven. And He's blazed the trail from fallen, lost humanity all the way to heaven. And He brings His sons with Him into glory. Now let's back up a second. Think about Lewis and Clark. They blaze a a path through the Rocky Mountains. And now there's a trail that's easy to follow. And people know what to expect on it. They know the end destination. Wouldn't you follow that trail? Wouldn't you follow their path? Or do you think you can find a better path? I know people like that. They, they always think they can find a better way. A better way. And Jesus says, I am the only way. And I blazed a trail to glory and I'm bringing you with me to glory. Why in the world would we try to find another way? That's really, that's really what the author of the Hebrews is asking these Judaizers. These Christians who are tempted to fall back into another way. I don't know if you ever have gone out into the, the mountains. Uh, we had the privilege of living near the mountains when we were in Alberta. And we have done some hunting out in the mountains. You want to stick pretty close to a trail. You want to know where you're going. It's rugged country. It's brutal. Take that times an infinite amount of numbers to think about how lost we are without God and how impossible it is for us to get to glory without someone who pioneered the way to bring us to glory. That's the captain of our salvation. Pioneer. But, but this captain could also mean another word, like, like, like commander. It contains this, it came, contains really this, this understanding that he's also a commander. Like a, a captain of a ship who, who sets the course, who makes all the proper arrangements, who navigates through all of the storms of life. But, but Jesus is even more than just a captain of a ship. He's, he's more like a captain of an army. And we have to recognize that when we talk about it in military language, we have to think about how they fought battles back in the Bible times. Where the captain wouldn't be sitting in some kind of safe 
room in, in the White House or something like that, but, but, but would actually rather be on the front lines leading the charge into battle. His troops would be following after him. That's the kind of captain Jesus is. As the commander of the army. He's not just a commander that says, here's the plan, now go along and fight the battle. No, he's a captain who says, come on, come along with me. I'm blazing the way to glory. You can just follow me. What kind of captain would you like to follow? One who goes ahead and and fights with you on the front lines. Or one who sits back and says, go along, figure it out. Here's the plan, but if it goes awry, you figure it out. He, he's a captain who, who says, come on, let's go. I blazed the way. He's a captain that has the purpose of motivating. A captain's also a, a motivator. A motivator. Especially this kind of captain. And when you can be motivated, you, you, you think about a captain, even in a, a basketball team or something. You, you want to have a, a good captain on your basketball team. One who, who, who knows the skill of playing basketball. The one, the one who, who, is, who is probably one of your best players. The one who's always there. The one who, one who knows the game. The one who's good at the game. The one who has success. Because that motivates you. You see, a captain on a basketball team is far different than the coach. The coach giving you all the best advice, but, but the captain is on the floor with you. Playing defense with you. Playing offense with you. He's involved. The very action of a captain motivates us. How much more than the Lord Jesus Christ who's with us in the game, in the fight. He's with us, motivating us. Motivating us by his, not, not only by His action, but His, his very words. Sometimes he's, he's beside us saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. And He praises the grace of God in your life. It rewards us with praise. And sometimes when we're down and out, we're feeling ashamed of how little we serve Him and how, how weak we are and how frail we are. He comes alongside us, puts His arm around us, and lifts us up and says, Fear not. I am with you. I blazed the trail for you. I set the course for you. I made the arrangements for you. I've navigated the storms for you. I've won the victory for you. And when you don't see the way clearly and the storms are on the horizon, by faith we say, but we see Jesus, the captain of our salvation. We see Him who was made perfect through suffering. Maybe you have the question, but how can I trust Him as a captain of my salvation? These very words ought to do it. He was made perfect through sufferings. That doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful. 
before he suffered on the cross. It doesn't mean that he somewhere was sinful even from the time he was born or had original sin or anything like that. No, he was a sinless Christ. Perfect, sinless. He was not made perfect by paying the price of his own sin or anything like that. Not at all. But what this is saying, that through sufferings, he perfectly fulfilled the will of God and perfectly obeyed in submission to his heavenly Father. In other words, he fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled, what Adam failed. He perfectly fulfilled obedience before God. He perfectly fulfilled what Moses failed at. He perfectly fulfilled a Joshua figure because Joshua died. We know that. And Israel failed again and again and again. We fail again and again and again. But we see Jesus who perfectly, through suffering, was obedient to His Father. That gives him the exclusive right to bring children of God into glory. You can trust him. You can trust his suffering. Augustine once wrote, the cross of Jesus Christ was a pulpit in which Jesus preached his love to the whole world. That's the purpose of His incarnation. To arise on that pulpit of the cross and to preach His love. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can I ask you today, Is he your captain? The way is prepared by him. You can trust in him as your commander. You will be motivated by his work of salvation. You will be motivated by his wisdom, his courage, his success. You will be comforted by his words. Fear not. I am with you. Is he your captain? A captain who's a suitable mediator. A mediator to come to pay the price of our sin, to earn our righteousness. Can you pay the price of sin? Can you prepare that way to bring into the holy of holies a blood that would be satisfying to the justice of God? Can you do that? Can you prepare enough righteousness in yourself and clothe yourselves with enough fig leaves to come and stand before God on judgment day? Can you? Well, there's one who can. A suitable mediator. Jesus, the captain of our salvation. One who you can cast yourself upon. Even when, even when Satan 
And all the powers of darkness come up against you. And you feel outnumbered ten to one. You can know that he is with you. And he who is with you is greater than he who is against you, he says. You don't have to be afraid. He's the leader. He's the commander. He's the captain. We see Jesus. And he shall never fail. He shall never be discouraged. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Oh, what a suitable mediator. What a suitable captain. The captain of our salvation. Well, how does he do this? That's what we want to see in our third point. The purpose of Christ's incarnation is to bring many sons to glory as the captain of our salvation by being sanctified as one in Him. Verse 11. For both He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. That's why I read John 17 to you a while ago. Jesus came into this world for the purpose of bringing us into glory, but he does so in a way that unites us in one in him. He is one with the Father, and we become one in him and one in God. As brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, as sons and daughters of God, in the family of God, we are sanctified. It means we are set apart in one. Just as Adam represented all of humanity, so Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, represents all who put their trust in Him. And all who put their trust in Him are buried with Him in His death and in His suffering, and raised with Him in newness of life. And Jesus' obedience is their obedience. And the incarnation of Jesus makes this all possible. It would be impossible without Jesus becoming our flesh to become the second Adam. Because there He can sanctify us as one in Him. To bring us into family solidarity with God. Oneness with God. To be reconciled with God. That's how He does it. He becomes our mediator. That suitable mediator. How do we know this for sure? Well, we know this for sure by... Really what the author to Hebrews does here when he wants to make us make sure that we know this is true. He takes us back to the Old Testament. He says, here, I'll prove it to you from the Old Testament. And he turns back into the Old Testament with them to Psalm 22, first of all. And he says, look at this psalm. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And you might think, well, that sounds kind of strange there that that he would quote that psalm. How does it fit here? Well, you have to understand that these Hebrew Jews would have known the Old Testament very well in Psalm 22 especially. And they would have known how this psalm begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
understanding the depth of this suffering servant of the Lord in Psalm 22, they come to this realization that at the end of Psalm 22, there is success through suffering and and that, that God has heard the cry of the sufferer. And the sufferer then declares the name of God to his brethren. That's that's what's going on here. And so he's basically saying, these brothers, this new spiritual family, through his, his, his death, he's going to proclaim their name through his incarnation. Notice how he says this. That he's going to do so in the midst of the assembly or in the presence of the congregation, you could say. He's going to call them his brethren and declare God's name to them and save them. It's What it's showing here, it's putting emphasis on the fact that Jesus was created a little lower than the angels in the incarnation. And through this suffering and death, he's restoring us to a family relationship in God. But he doesn't only quote Isaiah 22. He quotes or sorry, Psalm 22, but also Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, we recognize there in, that, that Israel's in a difficult position. And Isaiah's witnessing to, to Ahab at the time and recognizing that that they're, they're in a devastating situation. And this is the wonderful promise of Emmanuel comes out of this and, and, and the fact that, that they can trust in God who is with them. But this, this trust in God was, was not always seen in Israel. It was a stumbling block to them many times and, and so also it is now. But, but yet Jesus Christ comes in the flesh to make us one with God. He says, we can trust in Him because He Himself stands and says, Here I am, O Father, and the children whom God has given me to demonstrate, to demonstrate this relationship that He has with His people. It's one. I can take great comfort and encouragement in that. He confirms it. The messianic psalm from the Old Testament and a messianic prophecy from Isaiah that indeed this is His purpose to reunite us in one in God. I, um, I think we should just go back and say, what is man? That you are mindful of Him or the Son of Man that you take care of Him. And even when we don't see all things under his feet, we say by faith, but we see Jesus who came in the flesh, who suffered, who died, who was crowned with glory and honor, who now sanctifies us into the family of God by faith through grace. In two weeks' time, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
I won't be here next Lord's Day. I have a pulpit exchange with Pastor Mordite. I trust he will lead a preparatory sermon. But maybe we can already begin to think about the Lord's Supper as we continue to meditate on this passage. And we can ask ourselves, yes, is he my captain? Is he the captain of my salvation? Am I a son and daughter that he is bringing into glory? Yes, we can ask that. We should ask that. But maybe we also should ask this question, and I'll just leave it with you. If that's God's purpose, to give His only Son, to be so greatly humiliated, to die for our sins, and we believe in Him, and we're brought into the family of God, and we confess that, think you know where I'm going. Are you living that? Am I living that? Am I living a life worthy of being in the family of God? If we are to be made one in Him, One in Him. That means He's sanctifying us. And we ought to want to look at ourselves. Put off the evil. And put on the new. To be renewed as one in Him. Am I? Are you living worthy of the great calling? being a son, a daughter of the living God. Amen. Lord, we bow before you, one who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly just, who demonstrated your holy justice the cross of Calvary, pouring out your wrath upon your Son who suffered and died to satisfy such a holy wrath. To be able to extend mercy to those who believe in Him and trust in Him in order to bring them as one back into your family. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here who's not in the family of God in truth and in faith, bring them in irresistibly by the power of your grace. The power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, by that same power of your Spirit, Live in us and sanctify us to be one in Jesus. And when we see our failings, may we see Jesus, His suffering, His obedience. And may we be motivated again to press on to that high calling that we have as being the children of God. Lord, hear our prayer.
forgive us of our sins and go with us. Not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake. Amen.